as we get started, I kind of, for those that have children watching, just wanted to give a little activity for them. If you have some crayons or pens and paper around, maybe you can draw two pictures on the page side by side. If you can draw a picture of a time in your life when you remember being really joyful, uh, being very happy. And then on the other side of the page, if you can draw a time in your life when you remember being sad. And then for both pictures, where would you draw Jesus in these pictures? What is he doing? What is he feeling? What does his face look like? So I wonder if that may be something to reflect upon in this time for our children. I've been reflecting a lot in recent days and months on joy, especially how the Bible so often paradoxically places joy side by side with things like suffering and sorrow and loss. Think of Hebrews 12. It was for the joy that was set before him that Jesus endured the cross. 1 Corinthians 6, I am sorrowful, says Paul, yet always rejoicing. Habakkuk 3, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I mean, Habakkuk here is, is talking about a time of great economic scarcity. He says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So the question for me has been in recent months, how do you and I experience joy, like genuine, deep-seated joy in the midst of suffering and sorrow and loss? You see, on the one hand, the biblical story of creation and fall and redemption and consummation, that biblical story does not allow us to treat evil and suffering and loss lightly. There is real sorrow in the world, and there is real reason for real sorrow. I mean, I think of Jesus, blessed are those who mourn, he says. Or the psalmist who cries out in Psalm 11 in a prayer that animates the worship of Advent. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And how long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart? You see, the worship of Advent does not invite us into some sort of glib Christianity or overly sentimentalized spirituality, but rather into the groaning of creation for the fullness of redemption and redemption that only the messiah can bring a redemption that was promised long ago but will only come with the coming of the messiah and that's why we sing that song that we've already sung every sunday in advent O come O come emmanuel and ransom captive israel that mourns in lonely exile here the Son of God appear. See, on the one hand, the biblical story does not allow us to treat evil and suffering and loss lightly. Yet, on the other hand, the biblical story of creation, fall, redemption, consummation does not allow us to experience life, even this present broken life, without joy. I mean, the prophet Isaiah that Tom read gives us a vivid picture of this joy, good news for the poor healing for the brokenhearted, freedom for the captives, and comfort for the mourning, and provision for the grieving, and praise for those who once despaired, and the rebuilding of ruined cities. All of this joy, says Isaiah, breaking into the world through the anointed one, the coming Messiah, conceived and overshadowed and anointed by the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord. 
once again, the question keeps nagging me. <laughs> How do you and I experience joy, genuine joy, in the midst of suffering and sorrow and loss? Or to put it another way, how do you and I experience joy in the desert places, in the wilderness places? I think for many of us, this season has felt a little bit like a wilderness at times. Or to put it even another way, how do you and I sing that great song, Joy to the World, when the world is hurting? Now, I think the answer that we are given to consider from our gospel reading this morning comes from the life, the unlikely and unusual life of John the Baptist. Not exactly the place most people would think to go to, to get clues for joy. And yet I think John shows us a unique path to joy. He shows us that Christian joy, abiding joy, comes in part from a clear-sighted vision of who we are and who we are not. A clear-sighted vision of who we are and who we are not. The great Presbyterian preacher Dale Bruner once observed, if we are only sure of who we are not, we can suffer from an inferiority complex, lacking the joyful courage and conviction in the midst of our present circumstances. But he says, on the other hand, if we are sure only of who we are, we can have a sense of superiority, lacking the joyful humility and grace towards one another and our neighbors that Jesus so deeply wants for us. John knows who he is. In the biblical story, he knows who he is, and he knows who he is not. Three times he tells us who he is not. Verse 19, now this was John's testimony, we're told. When the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was, he did not fail to confess, but, but confessed freely. He said, I am not the Messiah. And then in verse 21, they asked him, who are you then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. And then verse 21 again, are you the prophet? And he just simply answered, no. Notice the increasing brevity and clarity of John's responses to their questions. Who are you? I am not the Messiah. Elijah, I am not. The prophet, no. There is this incisive clarity in John's life about who he is not. And there seems to be a freedom and a joy in knowing that. I mean, there's so many voices in John's life, I'm sure, as there were in ours, telling us who we should be from day one, what we should be doing, what we should care about, and what we should fight for. And I'm sure John felt the temptation to be all things to all people sometimes, or to live out an identity that was not, in fact, the one that God had given him. And I can imagine John feeling insecurity sometimes when he was in the desert. Did I really choose the right path? I can imagine him experiencing fear at times. What are people going to think of me? And I can imagine him experiencing at times maybe even an exaggerated sense of his own identity. God has given me this unique vocation to call the nation back. See, John reminds us of the gift and the freedom and the joy of knowing who we are not. We are not the Messiah. A witness to the light, yes, but the light of life itself, no. We are not Elijah. A witness to the great and awesome day of the Lord's coming, yes, but a special knowledge of when he's going to come and how and why, no. We are not the prophet, the one that was expected in Deuteronomy 18 to be like Moses himself. A witness to the truth, yes, we are. The perfect knowledge of the truth, no, we don't have it. 
the standard by which all people should think and feel and live? No, we're not that. Having the answers to all the world's problems? No, we are not that. You see, there's something about being in the desert, in the wilderness places of life, however painful they may be, and they are painful, that strips us of our false pretenses, strips us of the false identities that we so often carry around, and of the false competencies that we so easily claim for ourselves. In the desert, God often reminds us of who we are not. And I don't know about you, but this has been one of the experiences for me in this season. <laughs> Being made very aware of my own limitations, of where I need to grow, of where I need help. And it seems to me that the world is, is lacking this, this sort of joyful and free, freeing humility in the midst of this season. Alexander Smayman once said, he said, we moderns take ourselves too seriously. We, we've forgotten how to laugh. <laughs> and Karl Barth once says, laughter is the closest thing to grace. We need to be reminded in this season of who we are not and be freed by that. For it's in knowing who we are not, ironically, that we are then helped in focusing on who we truly are. And John knows not only who he is not, but who he really is in the biblical story, who he is. Three times he tells us, he just says, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. I'm just one who baptizes in water, but I'm just preparing for the one who's going to baptize in the Holy Spirit. And he who comes after me, the straps of his sandals, I am not even worthy to untie. In the ancient world, untying someone's sandals was exclusively the job of a slave or a servant. It was a demeaning and menial task, and you should never do it if you were not a slave or servant yourself. And here, John, like Paul after him and every Christian after him, identifies with and delights in the great dignity of being the servant of the coming Messiah. And it's one of the utterly shocking realities of the New Testament that we find people like the highly educated upper-class Paul boasting in his status as a doulos, a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. Not someone who insists on his or her own way and rights, but someone who delights in the humble obedience of preparing the way for the master, the master to come into people's lives. I think of the song of Mary. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Why? Why such joy in being a servant? Why such joy in something that so often involves sacrifice and suffering? and sorrow, and loss. The question brings us to the heart of the Christmas story. Though he was in the form of God, says Paul, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, doulos, being born in the likeness of humans. It seems that here we have stumbled upon the unexpected dignity and joy of the Christian life. To be like God 
in the very way we serve and bear witness to God. The great theologian Karl Barth once said, what marks out God above all the other false gods is that they are not capable and ready for this humility. In their otherworldliness and supernaturalness and otherness, the gods are a reflection of the human pride which will not bend down, which will not stoop to that which is beneath it. But our God, says Bart, our God is not proud. In his high majesty, he is humble. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. In the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit.